the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello and welcome to the second in our series of Slaughter and May podcasts, Redundancies in Focus. I'm Claire Fletcher, a professional support lawyer in the employment team, and today I'm joined by Lizzie Twigger and Catherine Flower, both senior counsel in our employment team. Today's episode is called People Not Employees. There are five key points that Lizzie and Catherine will discuss today. Firstly, does the workers' contractual label matter when it comes to redundancies? Secondly, we'll look at how some of the traditional terminology on redundancy doesn't really fit in the current climate. Thirdly, how different the outlook is now from the last financial crisis in 2008. Fourthly, how mindset is going to be key for the next generation of redundancies. And finally, the importance of getting the business case right at the outset. So Catherine, if I can start with you, we've called this podcast People Not Employees. Does the contractual label actually matter? Well, redundancy protections only attach to employees, i.e. an individual who has entered into or works under a contract of service or apprenticeship. There is a discrepancy with the directive which applies to workers, but for now at least UK case law limits the application to employees. What are these protections? Well, they relate to the process for termination, and in particular, the decision-making process and obligations on an employer who is contemplating redundancies, and require, subject to the relevant conditions being met, a collective consultation and certain payments to be made. This can be a costly exercise for employers in terms of time and money. So are there alternative ways to look at headcount reduction and cost saving? Workforces are becoming more flexible and and they're increasingly made up of different types of worker, of course. So, I mean, one question, does a zero hours employee even need to be considered for redundancy? The work just isn't there. So no work's required, no work's done. Can you place a zero hours employee on a permanent freeze until the work picks up again? And we've seen examples of this in some of the cinema groups which have had to close temporarily. Whereas others, for example, Everyman have recently been in, in the press, their permanent employees have been put on layoff, which is in effect redesignating them as zero hours contractors, since their usual um, work and pay is withdrawn, even if they remain in employment. And what do you do with agency workers, for example? Well, this group are not employees, and the arrangements for their provision can normally be terminated or amended more freely and with more limited cost implications. But details of numbers of agency workers are part of the required information to be given to representatives in collective consultation, which in our experience has set an expectation that such workers are often regarded as primary targets for headcount reduction before looking at employee redundancies. Yes, and another type of contract I've been asked about a lot recently is that of a fixed-term contract worker. There's a few issues there. We know it amounts to a dismissal, but it can be excluded from the numbers for the purposes of collective redundancy consultation, although it has to be included if it's terminated before the end of the term, which has certainly caught some employers by surprise. So a cost saving which involves letting FTCs expire will have no effect on the trigger for collective redundancy consultation. So this suggests that allowing FTCs to expire might be another easy reduction. But is it? Is there a discrimination angle here, Lizzie? And there's a very specific protection attaching to FTCs so that any targeting on the on the basis of the FTC status does need to be considered quite carefully. There is a question over this. 
And that actually, it's almost the opposite of the position on agency workers. There shouldn't, in my view, be a blanket assumption that an FTC role can go. An employer needs to assess carefully the business case for those roles and their removal, albeit that the less than two years might look as though it gives more flexibility. There is no doubt that even without the impact of COVID, there's been a huge move in recent years to more flexible ways of hiring workers, where we've been moving away from traditional for some time. With the additional impact of the pandemic, can we even still think in the traditional terms of one establishment and headcount reductions? Well, I think we have to, because that's actually what the law says, that where an employer is proposing to dismiss as redundant, 20 or more employees at one establishment within a period of 90 days or less, then there's a duty to consult on a collective basis and there's some pretty stringent penalties for a failure to do so. So I I think you ignore those terms at your peril, but what does that mean in the new environment? And and you, you you might even ask, what is an establishment anymore? And in relation to collective exercise, it's certainly true that the language at one establishment has given rise to a significant amount of case law. Key cases like Woolworths have confirmed that an establishment means the entity to which the workers are assigned to carry out their duties. But a number of employers have recently made public their decision as to how to operate their businesses in the medium and long term, which involves far greater use of flexible working arrangements and employees working from home. In some cases, even, this has meant employers giving up their office space completely. So what does this mean for our understanding of establishment, if all employees are ultimately largely working from home? Does that mean that in some sectors, the employer will itself be the establishment? Yeah, it's quite. And how easily is headcount assessed in a world where employees have been working more flexibly and quite often remotely with much more limited visibility? Is it still possible to assess if there really is a diminished need for employees? The answers to those questions are quite likely to be more difficult and complicated than before COVID, I'd have thought. And not only does this mean that the employer's rationale and decision-making process will need to take such flexibility into account when making a proposal, but it's, it's going to have to be relevant to selection and assessment of performance as well and be much harder to do. So I think we're saying it will be for the employer to show why a role must be lost rather than just done in a different way. Given the backdrop to any redundancies in the next 12 to 24 months will be employees having become quite practised actually at working more flexibly and balancing working from home and childcare and other caring responsibilities. I think employers can expect employees to be more creative in coming up with alternatives to the loss of their job and employers will need to anticipate and respond to that in what what might look like very different consultations. And I think some of that will be very positive indeed. Um, The airline pilots union, Balper, they had discussions with EasyJet. EasyJet had originally anticipated over 700 pilot redundancies. They ended up, in fact, with 60 voluntary redundancies and one and a half thousand pilots opting to go part time to save the jobs of colleagues. And this is in a world where pilots who are highly skilled specialists won't easily find other pilot roles anywhere for some time. So they individually are impacted. But the employer, when things pick up, is likely to need them and want them to go back to full time work. So the employer gains too. And I guess that's another angle, really, on what we might call the new redundancy exercise. We're dealing with the impact of 
on people in a world that's going to look very different from even the one we faced back in 2008 in the recession. Yes, people will be faced with losing their jobs where whole sectors of the economy have been radically changed, or even in some cases disappeared. It's clear that quite apart from the physical risks of COVID, there are serious mental health implications. Some of that will be the threat of job losses, and our expectation is that there are very likely to be many more difficult consultations in which the human angle will be very much at the forefront. Which is, of course, why we've um, called this podcast People Not Employees, because I think now more than ever, the personal impact of redundancy will be huge. There's far greater uncertainty in the job market. The recent joint ACAS-CBI-TUC statement stresses the importance of handling these exercises carefully and recognising the massive impact on employees' mental health, particularly in this climate. I mean, they use phrases like, do it openly, do it genuinely, do it with dignity. We're perhaps concluding then that in the next generation of redundancies, mindset will be key. I think we are. We've been talking about new ways of working and the implications for the traditional approach to redundancies. We all keep saying it, but the current situation really is unprecedented. Past financial crises which have given rise to redundancies have really looked quite different. There was no furlough, no short-term changes to terms and conditions, no sustained periods of alternative ways of working. There was a sense that there would be a recovery. And, you know, there must be a sense that there will be a recovery again now. But this time we don't know when and we certainly don't know what it'll look like. And an employer's perspective will be quite different now too. And employers may be more creative in terms of the alternatives to redundancy that they propose. The Balpa solution shows a really impressive working of employees, union and management in a collective way to achieve what is quite a surprising but definitely encouraging outcome. And I'd have thought we can expect not just collective consultation, but individual employees to do the same too. And the more creative and carefully thought through the option, the more difficult it may be to respond to unless the employer is equally open minded, especially if, as will inevitably quite often be the case, the answer eventually is that it needs to take the difficult to to dismiss anyway. It has always been the case, though, hasn't it, that employers should approach redundancies and associated consultation in a spirit of openness and genuine dialogue. I guess it maybe isn't always like that, though. It is true that it has been difficult for employers to make suggestions to avoid or mitigate redundancies that might be workable or even attractive to employers. But now employers will be far better placed to argue for a different approach and may even be able to go some way to demonstrating how it can work by reference to the last six months or so. Yes, I think what's been lip service in the past, you know, could be significantly improved if it's possible properly to engage in some creative thinking. You know, perhaps consultation may be able to be properly that and exactly what the legislation itself requires. You know, the words are that you're looking for new ways, for ways of avoiding the dismissals, reducing their numbers and mitigating the consequences of them. And if we can genuinely do that, it would be you know, quite a marked change, I think. But to be ready for those discussions, I don't know about you, Catherine, for me, it's likely to be more important than ever to have a properly prepared business case for your approach right from the start. I completely agree. Having a clear business case set out and articulated has always been key 
to implementing a redundancy programme, because it's central to being able to explain why the changes are being proposed. It will become even more important, though, knowing what needs to change and why on the one hand, and what you need to achieve on the other will be critical for those consulting with employees and representatives. Yeah, if, if employees are making creative proposals, the employer needs to know in their mind their clear goal and they need to be able to easily explain it. Because although that how that goal's reached may be a more creative process than the pure numbers reduction of the past, the fact is the goal and the purpose of the change being implemented must be clear and it must be kept in mind. Because otherwise, you know, as somebody said to me recently, the risk is that you're going to end up with an end result which is not what is needed and, and you're going to have you know, trouble going down the line. I think as long as there's a clearly articulated issue that a workforce can understand, if we can bring new approaches to the traditional jo- loss of jobs exercise, well, you know, that's got to be a good outcome of this difficult pandemic, don't you think? Absolutely. Thanks, Lizzie. Um, And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Do look out for future episodes in this series, which we'll be publishing in the coming weeks. You can find all our podcasts via the Slaughter and May website. Thank you and goodbye for now. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.